Um, so oddly, taking call every second to third night for years and years and just the stress of keeping up with that practice, though, was what crashed my health. And what ended up, uh, I ended up identifying with chronic Lyme disease. At first, I thought antibiotics were the solution, but that didn't work. And finally, I was forced to return to herbs and it just kind of opened up this thing that seemed to have been missing. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with change makers from all over the world who are contributing to the common good. Contributing to the common good in even the smallest of ways is proven to help us age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will inspire you to live with zest. To find out more about the podcast, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind the scenes looks at our guests and other fun tidbits. And if you love the podcast, I'd be grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest. Find out more at judybanker.com. Our technical director is Stephen Litweiler. Well, you know who I've got right by my side, my loyal Jack Russell Sparky. So let's begin. Chances are you've been hearing a lot about Lyme disease lately. Whether you know someone who has had it or if you've even had it yourself, it's a very scary problem. Here in upstate New York, we have a lot of deer and the Lyme disease is out of control. And I have been searching for an expert to speak to us about the problem of Lyme for over a year. So I'm especially happy to have our guest on today. Dr. Bill Rawls is an OBGYN and leading expert in Lyme disease, integrative health, and herbal medicine. In the middle of a successful medical career, Dr. Rolls's life was interrupted by Lyme disease. As he struggled to overcome it, he explored nearly every treatment possible from conventional medicine to a range of alternative therapies. In the process, Dr. Rolls discovered a dearth of knowledge about Lyme in the medical community and a shocking amount of controversy and confusion about causes, diagnosis, and treatment that left thousands of patients confused, unsupported, and chronically ill. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rawls. It's great to have you today. Ah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you. You know, I put something up on social and I said, hey, everybody, um, I'm going to interview Dr. Rawls tomorrow. What do you want to know? And essentially, you can anticipate, there's so much confusion out there, even with people who are really well-educated and try to follow, you know, the latest research. Um, the first question I have is from a listener, Jan, and she said, hey, whatever happened to that vaccine? Uh, there was some vaccine coming out and and we haven't heard anything more about it. Let's start there. All right. 
Well, uh, the vac- there, there have been vaccines before. There was a vaccine uh, back in around 2003 that made it partway through trials, and the company was actually sued by participants because they felt like they're, they had developed autoimmune illnesses relation to the vaccine, so they actually canned the idea. Mm. Um, that has resurfaced and it, uh, more enthusiastically this time, um, using basically the same principles, but vaccinating against Borrelia, the microbe that causes Lyme disease. Um, how this one will turn out, we don't know. It's about the same place in trials that the last vaccine was. And the whole idea is, hey, you just get a vaccine and you eliminate your risk of Lyme disease and you just don't worry about it anymore. But it's not quite that simple. And that's what I found out during my journey, that this microbe that we call Borrelia, that's been associated with Lyme disease is far from being the only microbe. So when you look at ticks, ticks carry literally hundreds of different microbes, many of which can cause human illness that mimics the symptoms of Lyme disease. So, and beyond that, there are now we know 21 different species of, of Borrelia worldwide that can cause Lyme disease. So when I started calculating the numbers of microbes that could potentially be involved, it ran out well over 100 different microbes. So Lyme disease is complicated because all of these things are low-grade pathogens. It's not like coronavirus. It's not like Ebola virus. It doesn't cause acute infection. It causes these chronic infections very typically, and a lot of people. 95% of the people that I talk to that identify with chronic Lyme disease never had any symptoms when they got a tick bite. It's only later when other factors add up in their lives that cause stress that they end up becoming ill. And that's, I, I, I wanna pick up on that because that really is a vital point. But before we move on, I wanna just ask you about dogs. I know you have your dog right by you and I have my dog and he just got a Lyme vaccination. So yep. tell me about that. Tell, so am I, to, uh, am I to understand that it's of limited use um, uh, in dogs. You know that I, it, uh, all of these things, whether you're talking about dogs or humans, it's a low-grade pathogen. Um, it's, it's, in other words, the potential of, the, of it to cause illness um, is not as great as some microbes. In other words, when a person, a dog, or anyone else gets infected with it, it may or may not cause illness. It depends on how much, uh, how healthy their immune system is and whether, how prime their immune system is for that particular microbe, which can vary from person to person. Um, so a lot of people, you know, if we tested everybody in your area, I think we would find that an awful lot of people are carrying not only Borrelia, but other tick-borne microbes without even knowing it. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes the immune system is able to dislodge it from the body, but oftentimes not. It just stays dormant in our tissues waiting for an opportunity. 
And would you use the uh, the concept of toxic load here? Is that appropriate in terms of, okay, it's dormant, and then you mentioned something about, okay, and then all of a sudden there's a huge stressor. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Um, well, are you referring to toxic load of bacteria or toxic load in general? In general. Yeah. Um, yeah, how it, it really depends on the health of us and the health of our cells. So we don't think about it this way, but our health is dependent on the health of our cells. Our cell, our body is made up of trillions of cells, about 200 different types of cells that have, you know, that perform all the functions in the body. So if all the cells in the body are healthy and everything's working well, you're healthy. So the things that stress cells that affect our health that cause chronic illness, quite frankly, are um, environmental factors. You know, are we nourishing ourselves properly? Are we getting the right food? Are we exposed to excessive toxins in our lives and that become congested in our cells? Are we stressed? Chronic stress disrupts communication so cells don't talk to one another and if they can't talk to one another they can't function properly and things break down physical factors like being sedentary you don't move blood and then we pick up microbes all through our lifetime you know who doesn't get some kind of insect bite and you know from the day we're born we start collecting microbes we put things in our mouths we you know and and the food that we eat scratches from dogs and cats so we're constantly picking up microbes and we think that well if you don't get an infection and nothing really happened or you don't feel the infection or an infection comes and it goes away but a lot of these things actually we're finding stay in our tissues mm -hmm. that's so fascinating i'm thinking about the gardening that i'm you know, I'm out there digging with my bare hands and, um, you know, there's been some research that shows that there, there's some good stuff happening too, but I'm sure there's all kinds of pathogens in that soil that I'm rooting around in. That's right. But all of these things are low grade. So, mm. you know, so, so this balance of what keeps you healthy is your immune system not being overtaxed so it can do its job of keeping microbes in check but also healthy microbes. You know, eating good foods that support your microbiome, but possibly even other microbes that we're exposed to and pick up that end up in our tissues might even be protective. So we think about all the microbes in our body being isolated to our gut, which technically is outside our tissues. It's confined inside the intestinal tract by the intestinal wall and on our skin. But we don't really think of microbes being in our tissues. But that that's changing. Um, studies are showing that we actually have a microbiome of the brain, that we do have very, very, very low concentrations of microbes in our tissues that actually live inside our cells. And it may be, this is still research for the future, it may be that even in our tissues, favorable microbes might actually help protect us from other microbes that are more concerning. 
Wow, it's this stuff is, is so fascinating to me. You alluded a moment ago to a healthy microbiome and you talked about foods. Could you just review for us again what basic foods are are best for a healthy microbiome? Um, you know, it, it's it, it it really when you talk about anything as far as being best for us it's what our cells are designed to tolerate, all right? It's all in our genetic history. So you look back, for over 200,000 years that humans have been around, we've been eating forage food. Only about, well, probably only 1% to 5% of that time, we've been eating grains and farmed food. So most of human history. So our genes define are defined by the past what we have done in the past and what kinds of stress factors, what foods, what microbes that we've been exposed to is what is normal for our body. So when you look at that ancient forage food, it was leaves and berries and nuts and, and things that it, whatever could be foraged and about two-thirds vegetable matter, one-third plant animal matter in most locations on Earth. But um, but that's what our cells are used to, and it was really low in calorie, low in carbohydrates. When we started farming, what we farmed were grains and beans because they offered high levels of carbohydrate. And we've really cultivated all our plants to produce high levels of carbohydrate, but that's not what our cells are used to. So it's uh, So when you eat a lot of carbohydrate, it not only is bad for your cells, but it grows bad bacteria in the gut and just all the way around. If you look at primitive populations that still exist on forage food, um, one being in Africa, in Tanzania, there's a, a tribe named, as the, named the Hadza population, um, who many of them are still foraging. And if you look at their gut, they have a perfect gut. And mm. they don't have the kind of intestinal illnesses that we do. Mm -hmm. So not to say we have to go back to that forage food diet. That isn't always the, the most comfortable or easy way to eat, for sure. I mean, no, no <laughs> going out, it's an, it's an all, you have to work all day if you're mm -hmm. going to forage. It's a hard life. But um, so we don't have to get up, bab up. But my rules for a healthy diet I've only got three really important rules. One, eat whole foods more mm -hmm. than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, because whole foods are whole cells. Our cells feed our cells better. They're, they have all the nutrients and carbohydrates and fats in the right ratios. A whole apple, a whole piece of salmon, a whole piece of broccoli. So whole foods as much as you can. Um, you can't do it for everything, but the more you lean toward that, the better. Doesn't Second have rule, a skew code. Right. Right. I mean, exactly. Okay. So uh, second is eat more vegetables than anything else. I try mm -hmm. to do that every day. I look for every opportunity to get more vegetables into my diet. And the third thing is eat less grain, dairy and meat than anything else. So it doesn't mean that you can't have grain or meat. Um, it just means you try to make less of it and you try to get more vegetables and you mm -hmm. try to get whole foods. And if you're doing those things, you're going to be doing really well. 
So give me an example of, I'm thinking about my typical breakfast, which is whole, uh, you know, uh, organic whole fat yogurt with granola that I've made, which sounds like I violated two of your major <laughs> rules. What would you eat for breakfast? I eat smoothies pretty frequently. I'll do a blueberry smoothie with a little banana in it. Um, and, but I also put cubes of butternut squash. You can get those frozen in the freezer section. And, um, I'll put some spinach, frozen spinach in there. So I try to get my vegetables assortment in there. Mm -hmm. And I'll add some collagen powder and some reishi or cordyceps mushroom powder to enhance the phytochemistry of it. And, uh, different kinds of milk, something like almond milk, something like that. Maybe a little agave nectar to sweeten. It. Um, another alternative is I do enjoy eggs. I think eggs are a good source of nutrient. Um, but instead of a piece of toast, I'll typically, I'll do like uh, sauteed salad greens. Like you mm -hmm. can get the big, the big baskets of salad greens in the grocery store that have yeah. those deep greens. I'll throw a whole bunch of those in the pan, like a huge handful. It, it, mm. and, it, and it cooks down and mix some pesto in there. And, um, and sometimes some butternut squash or sweet potatoes on the side. So I'm getting those vegetables along with my egg. And, and, colors, and, and, it's, and it's pretty good. Yeah, mm. color. I mm. love color in food. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Tell me about collagen powder. I, I didn't know whether that was a legit, a legitimate, sorry, legitimate uh, add-in. Add in. It certainly is being advertised a lot. Well, there's a lot of hype around collagen that you need this collagen or that collagen um, and you or you need bone broth and really what you're doing a lot of it you break down in your intestinal tract so basically what you're doing with collagen is giving your body raw material to make more collagen because we do turn over a lot of collagen and and it really basically just saves your body work and energy not having to build those nutrients from scratch um, but, you know, you can get basic collagen just from gelatin. Um, mm -hmm. But typically I use like a collagen powder, um, like a grass-fed organic source collagen. Um, but, you know, and nothing fancy, just uh, from something from the health food store. And, and, and it's got a pretty good range of amino acids that uh -huh. are good for a lot of things. I see. So the smoothies are are really helpful. Tell me about your interest in herbs because um, I know from reading your book that that didn't go over that well in uh, the medical community, your local medical community, when you started getting interested in herbs. You were a pretty conventional physician and you were starting to go rogue there. Um, well, it is a little bit rogue still, but maybe that is changing. I think a lot of physicians out there are starting to take notice, but it's not something that really is taught in medical school. We have a culture that's very dominated by drugs, and there is a reason for that. If you have a symptom and you want to get rid of it, herbs aren't going to fix it as fast as drugs are. So that quick relief is generally going to come from a drug because drugs are designed to block specific symptoms. 
You know, you take ibuprofen to block inflammation to reduce joint pain pretty acutely. Um, you take uh, Xanax when you're really, really anxious. You, you know, you mm -hmm. take a blood pressure medicine. But drugs are very specific because they specifically block certain pathways in the body that are associated with that symptom or disease process. The problem with that, though, is when you block one, you artificially block one pathway in the body, you disrupt a lot of other things, and it causes a lot of side effects. You take ibuprofen every day, and you'll end up with ulcers and heart disease because of it. So there, most drugs are going to have side effects related to those specific properties. When you look at herbs, you're talking about a totally different mechanism of function. Herbs are not working in the same way. Not to say that some herbs don't have some specific effects like drugs, but the majority of the herbs that we use have a restorative effect. And that's because what the herbs are are hundreds and hundreds of different chemicals that plants are producing to protect themselves, to protect their cells from stresses, like microbes, like free radicals, like toxic substances. So virtually all the things that threaten our cells threaten plant cells, and plants are using these defense mechanisms. They solve problems with chemistry. How fantastic. I, you know, I, I did not make that connection, but that's really interesting that we're kind of borrowing from Absolutely. the plant. Or, and, and is that also why some of the best plants tend to be a little bit bitter? Is that also the protective mechanism? Not necessarily. You know, okay. we, you know we, when you look at your culinary herbs, basil, oregano, all these mm. things, they're just as good. Now, what we tend to use for culinary herbs or herbs. So when you look at properties of plants, plant, this chemical makeup of the plant, um, you're getting two primary properties. One is protection. All these protective substances, especially the antimicrobial, protecting against viruses and bacteria. But you're also getting the signaling agents of the plant. So plants cells have to talk to one another. So they use a lot of the same hormones and chemical messengers that our cells use and our body uses, right? So some of those are balancing and comforting. And, and so most of the herbs that we use that are restorative, we don't feel an effect. Some herbs like kava, St. John's wort, have substances in them, though, that have drug-like actions. So on the spectrum of herbs, you can get all the way from nonspecific, neutral actions, uh, signaling actions, all the way up to very specific actions that have can have some drug-like effects. So most of the things that we're using are more protective and balancing. And that's true of your culinary herbs. You know, you wouldn't want to get a drug-like effect from using them. Hmm. But, but you get all the protective there. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's where herbs and spices came from, is things that added flavor, just that the phytochemistry happened to be things that we liked, but they also added protection and prevented spoiling of food. So that's how they were originally used before refrigeration. But now we add them mainly for flavor. 
we're still getting some benefits, but not in the high quantities. So culinary herbs, herbs that happen to taste good, were used to prevent spoilage of food and enhance flavor. Medicinal herbs just happen to have bitter flavor, so we tend to use them more as medicines, but a lot of those things, yeah, they're still really good herbs. You may not want to add them to your meal, but mm -hmm. taking them as a supplement can give you all those protective benefits that all herbs come with. So, and, oh, I'm sorry. Go that, ahead and that, finish your thought. Well, that's the defining feature between herbs and Drugs. So herbs, uh, drugs have really no protective effects. So they really do nothing to promote wellness. Herbs, even, so even in your signaling herbs that have drug-like properties, still have all those protective benefits. Mm -hmm. So any herb is going to give you that. So that's really one of the fantastic things about herbal therapy that I've learned over the years. That is absolutely fascinating. I never understood the process, and it's it's really helpful to do that. I know that you've put a lot of focus and attention on these healing and protective herbs. Can you describe some of the herbs that uh, you most like for um, balancing the immune system and restoring the immune system? Yep. Well, that's an easy question and a hard question. There are certain herbs that I tend to gravitate toward, but there's so many herbs out there that are wonderful, and I like them all. <laughs> but um, some that I use during my recovery, um, I tend, I use some, you know, there. what you get from an herb, its chemistry depends on problems it has to solve in its natural environment. So, uh an herb like cat's claw from the Amazon, where there's a lot of microbe stress, is going to be a nice antimicrobial herb. Something like rhodiola mm -hmm. from Siberia, yeah, not as much microbe stress there. It's not as quite as good as an antimicrobial as it is something that protects our cells from physical stresses and makes us more resilient to stress. So the the phytochemistry of the herb depends on what stress factors it's managing and whether it jibes with our biochemistry. So the things that we define as herbs actually are coming from that ancient forage food past that we've all been, been are connected to. So those ancient forage foods, well, they were stems and leaves and bark and and wild berries and roots. And it's kind of the same thing we're using as herbs now. So these things used to be food. Uh, so we gravitate toward the things that affect our biochemistry in a positive way. It's like poison ivy is a great antimicrobial, but nobody would want to eat poison ivy, mm. of course. Mm. So certain things, the way certain plants solve problems don't jive with us. So the things we know as herbs, we've been using for thousands upon thousands of years. They're just naturally connected to us. So some of my favorites, cat's claw is one. That's a really mm. nice herb that's um, not only uh, you know, an antimicrobial that's commonly used in Lyme disease. It's good for arthritis. It is wonderful for to protect the brain. All this phytochemistry is wonderful. Um, rhodiola, that's one of my very favorites. That's one I mm -hmm. take every day just to increase resilience and stamina. It's excellent. 
Japanese knotweed. You know, we hear a lot about resveratrol from grapes and wine, right? Mm-hmm. Japanese knotweed is actually an invasive herb that's a better source of resveratrol than grapes are. So Japanese knotweed is really wonderful. It's a great antimicrobial, but it has all these protective benefits on the heart and other systems in the body because of the resveratrol and other chemicals in the herb. So that's a really, really nice herb that I like. They're, um, they're, they're trying to not eliminate it here, but it is so invasive that oh, it's yeah, killing yeah. all the local fauna. So we, yeah. I see it everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what sometimes happens with your invasives, that sometimes they really are beneficial. We, we should be looking at the potential uh, herbal benefits that they might offer us so we could harvest these things and actually use them to our benefit. Mm-hmm. So Japanese knotweed is one of those. I like the medicinal mushrooms also. Uh, reishi mushroom, mm-hmm. uh, your little shelf mushroom that has the rust, rust color you see on trees every now and then. Um, it has uh, been studied by the Japanese for its really remarkable anti-cancer properties. Um, cordyceps, a, a mushroom that originated from Tibet, has some of the some similar properties. All these things are antiviral. So they have just, you know, each, each and every one of them are just extraordinary in their own way. So the nice thing about herbs is because of these protective chemicals without these drug-like effects, you can take multiple ones of them together in formulas to get overlapping benefits. So that's another really nice thing about herbal therapy that you just don't see with drugs. You know, the more drugs you take, the more side mm-hmm. effects you get. Mm-hmm. The more herbs you take, the more benefits you get. Mm-hmm. And what is the one that I'm not going to be able to pronounce? Ashwanga? <laughs> Ashwagandha. Oh, well, I was closer than I thought. Ashwagandha. That's been around for a while. Is that on your list? Of course. It's one of my favorites. The first product I ever formulated had ashwagandha in it. Uh-huh. Um, it is an herb from Africa. It It is also used as a food. Historically, it's been. But it's an herb that has this effect, the signaling agents. You know, all herbs have... Uh, protective properties and signaling properties. So the signaling side, the signaling agents in ashwagandha actually um, balance our hypothalamus. They, they feed back to the hypothalamus, which regulates our thyroid, our ovaries, and our adrenal. So these things balance. So ashwagandha, the phytochemicals, balance our hormones when we, that have been disrupted by stress. So they're good for menopause. They're good for reducing hot flashes because they affect the hypothalamus, which is basically the thermostat in the body. Um, They help us uh, respond to stress better. Um, But also they can help balance thyroid and improve thyroid functions. So it's it's a really, really nice herb that's applicable to so many situations that we all have. Would you have done your OBGYN practice differently knowing what you know now um, about herbs? Oh, yeah, most certainly. I, you know, I tended to be, I think, a little more open-minded 
in my OBGYN practice, I, I certainly came out of training as a conventionally trained physician, but um, I, I, I went into OBGYN because I just wasn't comfortable with management of chronic illness with drugs. Mm, and OBGYN, you know, the problems are acute um, and generally you're dealing with wellness and people who want to promote wellness. So it's very different than just managing chronic illness. So that was the big thing that attracted me to OBGYN. But throughout my practice from day one, this dates back like 25 or 30 years ago, I was mm-hmm. using bioidentical hormone therapy instead of the standard pharmaceuticals. And I was promoting, you know, I used to, this is, this is way, way, goes way back. I used to uh, give every one of my patients something called the optimum health sheet um, mm. that had diet recommendations and different things that they could do to relieve stress and have a better lifestyle. Um, so oddly, taking call every second to third night for years and years and just the stress of keeping up with that practice, though, was what crashed my health and uh-huh. what ended up, uh, I ended up identifying with chronic Lyme disease. At first, I thought antibiotics were the solution, but that didn't work. And finally, I was forced to turn to herbs, and it just kind of opened up this thing that seemed to have been missing all through my career and my life. So it's been it's been very fulfilling. Mm, that's fascinating. You were kind of primed for this. But you, you never knew uh, how you would be using it, your much more holistic approach. It took a long time to figure the herbs out. You know, I mm-hmm. think everybody gets the idea that, hey, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I've been good, but now I've got these symptoms and I want to get rid of the symptoms. And they take the herbs and these symptoms don't immediately go away because mm. we're so uh, used to using herbal, th- uh, using drug therapy with that acute immediate relief. So they discount the value of herbs. And I did too. I thought, well, herbs are okay, but they're just kind of a weaker version of drugs. And they really don't do much. So it was only through my experience that I really understood how differently the herbs were working than the drugs were working. Mm-hmm. And as I understood that, I realized that the herbs are really important, not just for treating illness, they're probably more important for us to incorporate in our lives every day to protect our health. And and that's where I am now, is really helping to educate people about the extraordinary value of of having making herbs an everyday part of your life. Mm-hmm. And so this is a great segue you have your own system that you have, um, uh, I think, developed. And where can people find out more about your health-promoting system, including herbs? Well, right right now, um, a big focus of what I've been doing over the past decade is helping people with chronic illnesses like chronic Lyme disease. And 
as I have been through my journey, I'm starting to see more and more connections between these kinds of microbes that we find in chronic Lyme disease, not just Borrelia, but all the others that I mentioned, and so many other chronic illnesses like Alzheimer's, like um, uh, Parkinson's, and so many others. And people aren't hearing about them because there aren't really any drugs that treat these things well. The herbs do, but yeah, the pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily want to let you know it, want mm. you to know about that. Mm. Mm. But I think it's as we find out more, uh, you know, that there's so much in the literature, scientific literature, over the past five years. Um, there's so much coming out. So right now, um, my focus is that I wrote a book several few years ago called Unlocking Lime. Um, that I put a herbal throat protocol in the book that is focused on helping people overcome Lyme, helping people on their journey, um, but also has a lot about just general health and wellness in it, too. So that's out there. Um, I have a website called RawlsMD.com. Mm -hmm. And that, that's R-A-W-L-S dot com, M-D dot com. M-D dot com, correct. Um, and that we, there's a lot of information. It's, you know, we're just trying to do everything we can to make it a resource for people with Lyme disease or that want to know about Lyme disease to find out about it. Um, but right now, the, my big emphasis over the past two years is looking at that bigger picture of how herbs are important for everyday use and how they can be applied for protecting wellness, for preventing illnesses of so many kind. So that hopefully will be on the bookshelves in about six months. Still don't have mm. a name for it. Um, we're still <laughs> working on that. Mm -hmm. But um, but where that that is in progress and will be out there as quickly as we can. And we are going to have you back on the show when that launching is imminent so we can talk more about it because I think this message is so very important and so many people will be helped by it. Um, so I really want to make sure we have you back on the show. Now, am I correct, Bill, that there was a link that people could use to download uh, parts of your book, Unlocking Lyme? Well, I, parts of it are on the website rawsmd.com, so that's okay. certainly a place that you can get lots of information. I mean, we try to be, you know, one of the ways I give back to Lyme disease is trying to give the book away. So we do a lot of giveaways at various webinars and things like that. So it's it's pretty available. Um, it's not just a throwaway book, though. I mean, I put two years of my life into uh, trying to capture everything that I knew about Lyme disease and my journey and why the herbs are so important. So it's it's truly loaded with information, not just about herbs, yeah. but all the other things that someone could do. Um, and you know when there's when there's uh, might be an indication for antibiotics and that sort of thing. Um, so it's all in there. So quite quite a bit of information. I was fascinated by the fact that some of these microbes were found in the remains of 5,000-year-old humans. Yes, 
Absolutely. In fact, um, I just shared that fact with a friend of mine while we uh, just uh, uh, saw each other well, at I, the vet this morning. I said, I, listen to this. I think that's a big illustration of, of, of the whole thing that we hear that Lyme disease is exploding. It's just going everywhere and we're just seeing more and more and more of it. And what I would maintain is that humans have been bitten by ticks since the beginning of humans and humans actually used to be bitten by ticks a whole whole lot more than they are today because we spend most of our lives indoors. Mm -hmm. And yes, ticks may be uh, increasing in some areas because of global warming, but they've always been out there. Lyme disease has been identified in every state in the United States, in every providence in cancer, again, Canada. It has been found from the tropics to the Arctic Circle. It, so everywhere there are ticks, there are microbes, but not just Borrelia, lots of other microbes. And they've been biting humans for a long time. Our immune system is very familiar with these things. They're low-grade, sneaky pathogens that get mm-hmm. in, but you can carry them without knowing it. And that, that, that uh, thing that you just mentioned, the 5,003-year-old uh, human that thought out of a glacier in the Alps, you know, this guy was carrying Borrelia in his system. And he actually had some herbs in a little pouch with him, mm. uh, which was interesting. But uh, so these, this, this particular microbe, Borrelia, was in his system, the same ones that's associated with Lyme disease most commonly. Um, but he was in his mid-40s, we think. He was shot in the back with an arrow, so he was actually murdered. He didn't die of Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And this guy was crossing the Alps, okay? So he he wasn't so uh, he bedridden. Was, he and, wasn't bedridden, yes. and and that. So this is the deal. That's really that's a normal host microbe relationship. All right, microbes don't want to kill us. Microbes want to use our body for food and a platform to spread to other hosts. If we're debilitated. That doesn't work for the microbe. So when you've got something like Ebola, that's a badly mismatched host-microbe relationship. So we're fairly well-matched to a lot of the tick-borne microbes. We can carry them. Are they, are they totally benign to us? No, not like our normal flora. They still do us damage. The guy from the Alps had arthritis and other problems that were probably associated with the microbes munching away at his system but they weren't killing him. Mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing a lot more of these illnesses because of two things. One of it is awareness. We're testing for it now. A lot of people used to be just sickly and the medical establishment didn't know why. A lot of them probably had these tick- the, the microborne illnesses like Lyme disease. The second thing is our immune systems are getting clobbered with bad food, mm-hmm. all those toxins, mm-hmm. chronic stress. Mm-hmm. So if your immune system is is stressed, then you're more apt to have debilitating symptoms with these kinds of illness. And once that thing gets going, it's like a pot boiling over. It's just hard to stop it. Yeah, that's the overarching theme here, I think, is... You know, how can we get our bodies restored and healthy so we can uh, uh, manage these 
um, kind of microbes. Exactly. So. It's all about immune health. Mm -hmm. So it's not as much about, you know, once you pick up microbes, they're part of you. They become part of you. And I, I don't think antibiotics, herbs, or anything else completely eradicate Borrelia from someone's system. I think I'm probably still carrying these microbes I picked up when I was a kid. But with herbs and good diet and good health practices, at 64, I'm leading a normal life. I'm still hiking, kayaking, surfing, kite surfing, all the things that I like to do. That's it. That's that's such a great um, place to end. And I'm so delighted for the chance to be able to speak with you today because I, you know, I've watched the documentaries. I've had Lyme. I've researched. But this really gave me a much more clear um, understanding of this process. So I thank you so much. I can't wait to have you back when your uh, book is ready to launch. And um, I, I hope people will visit your website, rawlsmd.com, and read some more about your, your work. Awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. And thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to people. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, uh, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. <music>